You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The show you're about to listen to is very carefully organized and fully scripted. For something a little more free-flowing and organic, check out this podcast. Hello, I am Adam Higgins from the Odd Data Podcast, where normal is not my specialty. What does that mean? Well, I just can't do one thing. Every week, I give you a sampling of personal stories, rants, ramblings, or just spending a day to nerd out a bit. Plus, I make fun of some weird news stories, and I tell you about a podcast that I think you should check out because sharing is caring, right? So if any of that sounds up your alley, subscribe to Odd Dad Out at odddadoutpodcast.com. Proper preparation prevents poor performance. You've got a first aid kit in your car, 401k is all set up, there's a little box of tornado supplies in the downstairs closet, plenty of canned goods in the pantry, and a few thousand rubber bullets. You don't have that one? The London Metropolitan Police Service does. After the 2011 London riots, the Met, as it's called, upgraded its inventory of rubber bullets from 700 to 10,000. If there's an item that people need, you'd better believe someone is holding a strategic reserve of it. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to part two of Butter in the Bank. In the first installment, which was way back on episode 20, before I started putting episode numbers in the title field, we talked about the Canadian maple syrup reserve, Chinese pork, Indian cotton, European butter, and American raisins. Most of those stockpiles are intended to guard against price fluctuations. Today we'll trend more toward survival necessities. Though if you've done any amount of research, You'll know you start off thinking one thing and end up going down a whole other road. So let's see where it takes us. We'll start with medicine, because if you haven't got your health, you haven't got anything. We like to talk about how we would handle the zombie apocalypse, but we should probably focus on slightly more likely to happen things, like natural disaster, terrorist attack, or a non-T-virus disease outbreak. That's where the Strategic National Stockpile comes in. Managed by the Center for Disease Control, the Strategic National Stockpile can provide life-saving medicine, vaccine, antidotes for chemical and biological agents, and more. The SNS is not a first responder, but if a state and national agency requests help, the SNS can provide critical supplies. It spreads its inventory between warehouses across the United States, that way it can respond to an emergency within hours no matter where it happens. The locations and exact contents of the warehouses are kept close to the vest. If the threat isn't well defined, like a sudden cluster of unusual deaths, the SNS sends 
push packages that contain a broad spectrum of medications and other supplies. CDC advisors take the supplies to the scene and hand responsibility over to the local authorities. Healthcare workers then distribute these supplies to those who need them. The medicine and supplies are provided free to the patients, which shouldn't be surprising or refreshing, but let's face it, kind of is. The strategic national stockpile responded to those affected by the 9-11 terror attacks, dispensed Cipro for the anthrax attacks in late 2001, provided antiviral drugs as well as gloves and masks. During the H1N1 swine flu pandemic in 2009, after Hurricane Katrina in 2005, the CDC realized they would also need to provide supplies for chronic diseases like diabetes, heart disease, and high blood pressure to treat patients in long-term disaster areas who would not otherwise be able to get their meds. This is where I'll put a clever segue about rubber gloves and maybe a glove slap to start a dual reference. Rubber stockpiles were once so important to Western nations specifically their ability to wage war, that secret missions were planned to steal the rubber of their enemies. Next to steel, rubber was the most important commodity in the war effort against Germany and Japan. When World War II began, Japan seized Burma, Malay, and the Dutch East Indies. This cut the Allies off from 90% of the supply of natural rubber. The lack of rubber for vehicles, aircraft, clothing, gas masks, and more could actually have cost the Allies the war. In the U.S., this sparked a prickly political battle between those who favored natural rubber and those who wanted synthetic rubber. Some politicians worried that a synthetic rubber program could lead to a dangerous policy of isolationism after the war. In the New York Times, one politician asked, Will the rubber policies we adopt now lead to World War III later on? Synthetic rubber at the time was inferior to natural rubber as well. In June of 1940, President Franklin Roosevelt created the Rubber Reserve Company to stockpile rubber. When it was created, the Rubber Reserve Company had about a million pounds or 454,000 kilos of rubber. This seems like a lot, but the military at the time was going through 600,000 pounds or 272,000 kilos a year, and if military activities increased, so would the need for rubber. Under the umbrella of the Rubber Reserve Company, several private corporations including Firestone, Goodrich, and Goodyear signed a patent and information sharing agreement to work together to produce better synthetic rubber. The Allies also launched Operation Mickleham in the early 1940s, which was supposed to smuggle rubber from Japanese-occupied areas, but failed to secure even a single ounce. It also didn't make much of an impact on historians, apparently, either, because I could barely find anything about it. In 2012, the U.S. decided to sell its rubber stockpile. As of 2015, Thailand, Indonesia, and Malaysia formed a consortium that produces about two-thirds of the world's natural rubber. They had tried to control prices, OPEC-style, but oversupply and diminishing demand put the kibosh on that idea. As with the bird song in the background a few weeks ago, you may notice a bit of Mother Nature this week in the form of thunderstorms. If possible, I'll edit them out, but nature is as nature does. There are a few things in life that we feel powerless to do anything about. 
and one of them is cancer. But we are not powerless. Later in the week this episode airs will be live stream for the cure, an important fundraising event for cancer research. But I'll let the creators tell you themselves. I'm Nick. And I'm Justin, and we can't believe it's already time for the 2019 live stream for The Cure. Thanks to our amazing peers, listeners, and supporters, last year we crushed our goal of $5,000 for the Cancer Research Institute. The Cancer Research Institute is funding research into immunotherapy to create a future immune to all forms of cancer. Every single cent we raise goes to them. This year, we're aiming our sights even higher with our most ambitious event to date. Join us May 17th through the 19th on twitch.tv slash epicfilmguys for 40 hours of live content from us and other amazing shows who will join us to try to reach $7,500. Please visit www.livestreamforthecure for more information or to find out how you can be a part of the event. Together, we can make a difference. Do you remember how, after like the third time Futurama got canceled, they did a quartet of movies which went back and forth in quality, kind of like the Star Trek films? One, Into the Wild Green Yonder, featured a creature called the Encyclopod that preserves the DNA of all endangered species. It's not news that animal species are disappearing at an alarming rate, with a quarter of all known mammals and a tenth of all birds facing extinction within the next generation or two. Global biodiversity is declining at an overwhelming speed. With each species that disappears, vast amounts of information about their biology, ecology, and evolutionary history are irreplaceably lost. In 2004, three British organizations decided to join forces to combat the issue. The Natural History Museum, the Zoological Society of London, and Nottingham University, like highly educated planeteers, created the Frozen Ark Project. They gathered and preserved DNA and living tissue samples from all of the endangered species that they could get their hands on, literally, so that future generations can study the genetic material. No, not like Jurassic Park. I think it's been established that that's a bad idea. So far, the Frozen Ark has over 700 samples stored at the University of Nottingham, and participating consortium members in the US, Germany, Australia, India, South Africa, Norway, and others. DNA donations come from museums, university labs, and zoos. Their mission has four components. To coordinate global efforts in animal biobanking, to share their expertise between the members, to help organizations and governments set up biobanks in their own countries, and to provide the physical and information infrastructure that will allow conservationists and researchers to search for, locate, and use the materials without having to resample from the wild populations. The Frozen Ark Project was founded in 2004 by Professor Brian Clark, a geneticist at the University of Nottingham. His wife, Dr. Anne Clark, an immunologist with experience in reproductive biology, and a colleague, Dame Anne McLaren, a leading figure in developmental biology. Starting in the 1960s, Clark carried out a comprehensive study on land snails of the genus Partula, which are endemic to the volcanic islands of French Polynesia. 
certainly not the worst place for field research ever. Almost all Partula species disappeared within a span of 15 years because of a governmental biological control plan that went horribly awry. In the late 60s, the giant African land snail, a mollusk the size of a puppy, was introduced to the island as a delicacy, but got loose and turned into a serious agricultural pest, as always seems to happen when we move animals from one place to another. And to keep up the trope, the giant snail had no natural predators. To control the African land snail, the carnivorous rosy wolf snail was introduced in the 70s, but it annihilated the native snails instead. Acting quickly, Clark's team managed to collect live specimens of the remaining 12 Partula species and bring them back to Britain. Tissue samples were frozen to preserve their DNA, and an international captive breeding program was established. Currently, there are Partula species, including some that would later become extinct in the wild, in a dozen zoos, and there have been some promising reintroductions. The extinction story of the Partula snail resonated with the Clarks, who realized that systematic collection and preservation of tissue, DNA, and viable cells of endangered species should be standard practice, ultimately inspiring the birth of the frozen ark. The Frozen Ark Project operates as a federated model, building partnerships with organizations worldwide that share the same vision. The Frozen Ark Consortium has grown steadily since the project's launch, with new national and international organizations joining every year. There are now 27 partners across five continents. Biological samples, like tissue or blood, from animals in zoos and aquarium can be taken during routine veterinary work or it can be taken from dead animals. Bonus fact, which is more of a nitpick because I'm a total word nerd, the post-mortem examination of an animal is a necropsy. The word autopsy only applies to humans. Autopsy means examining the self. The biobanks can provide safe storage for many types of biological material, particularly the highly valuable germ cells, i.e. sperm and eggs. The work of the Frozen Ark isn't merely theoretical for some distant day in the future. One success story, which illustrates the benefits of combining cryobanked materials, effective management, and captive breeding programs, is the alarmingly adorable black-footed ferret. The species was listed as extinct in the wild in 1996, but has since been reintroduced back to its habitat and is gradually recovering. More recently, researchers have been able to improve the genetic diversity of the wild population by using 20-year-old cryopreserved sperm and artificial insemination. We had some great feedback and interaction this week. Odd Dad Out, who you heard at the top of the show in the promo, gave me just a stunningly favorable review on his show. Not even a review, but I was the subject of the recommended listening section, and I can't thank him enough for that. Though he did mention that if you listen to me on Fast, I sound like a highly convincing robot. Have you found that, folks who listen to their podcasts on Fast? Do I sound like I'm teetering on the edge of the uncanny valley? Definitely hop over on our social media, Facebook and Instagram.com slash YourBrainOnFacts or Twitter.com slash BrainOnFactsPod. 
And it was on our Twitter this week that Brainiac Vera Wild shared something really cool about the episode two weeks ago, We Built This City, where we talked about failed utopian societies, one of which had a penchant for octagonal buildings. And Vera actually found an octagonal house in their town. And admittedly, it looks kind of nice. I don't know what it's like getting the furniture to fit inside, though. For those of you looking to the future rather than the past, don't forget that my new podcast and YouTube channel, Science with Savannah, age seven, that I'm doing with my niece, will be premiering soon. And the first episode will actually come out ahead of the launch over at patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts. It will be a free public post, though, of course, if you wanted to sign up, we'd love to have you over there. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. After hydrogen, helium... The stuff that makes balloons fly and gives you a chipmunk voice is the second most plentiful gas in the universe. So why does the U.S. government have a federal reserve of it? Short answer, war. Long answer, the U.S. created the Federal Helium Reserve in 1921 as a way to store helium for blimps, which seemed like they would be the next great weapon of war. Blimps didn't pan out as hoped. But the helium stockpile not only remained, it grew. The reserve, which is stored near Amarillo, Texas, had 11 billion cubic feet as of 2013. It provides 42% of America's and 35% of the world's helium supply. The location in Texas makes sense when you learn that helium is not extracted from the atmosphere, as I had always assumed, but is a byproduct of natural gas production. 
totally blew my mind. Helium has unique qualities that put it in high demand. It's an excellent coolant that stays liquid down to the temperature of absolute zero. Although it's exceptionally light, it doesn't explode like hydrogen has a nasty habit of doing. The largest commercial use of helium is as a coolant for the superconducting magnets necessary to build MRI machines. It also has properties that make it useful in arc welding, computer drives, fiber optic cables, aerospace telescopes, and scientific research. The Large Hadron Collider uses about 130 tons of helium to operate. Most of these technologies didn't exist or were in their infancy in the 1990s when the U.S. government decided to get rid of the reserve, passing the Helium Privatization Act in 1996, gradually selling the stockpile off to private buyers. But as helium had more and more uses, and the price was being kept artificially low, this led to massive waste. Worryingly, at the current rate of usage, the known global supply of helium is estimated to be entirely depleted in 20 to 30 years. Even though it appears to be a common element, about 24% of total universal mass, helium is actually rare on Earth in its usable form. The House of Representatives stepped in with the Helium Stewardship Act of 2013 and voted to extend the life of the helium reserve. These days, the U.S. is reducing its helium stores to 3 billion cubic feet. New mining endeavors are expected to eventually create a helium surplus, so we should be in good shape. For now. The most ubiquitous use of helium is in party balloons. For more about that, I toss you over to my friend and mentor, Emily Prokop, from the Story Behind podcast and the Story Behind book which you should definitely check out. When I first started researching this topic, I was planning on grouping party balloons and hot air balloons into the same episode. But the stories behind both are incredibly interesting, and I wouldn't want to leave anything out. So for this episode, I'll focus only on party balloons and save hot air balloons for another episode in the future. The actual timeline of balloons deviates quite a bit, including from the very beginning. Aztec dried animal intestines and stomachs, blew them up and twisted them to make animal shapes, then set them on fire to offer to the gods. Mayans were using a sap from rubber trees and mixing it together to form the precursor to rubber. They made toy balls and dolls for children to play with out of the rubber. So it's weird that there are two origins for balloons, depending on how you look at it. The separate timelines don't stop there, and this is why hot air balloons will have to be a different episode. They were the result of the pursuit of flight and go in a different direction as the balloons we use today for parties. But aside from the insides of animals, party balloons started in the laboratory of Michael Faraday in 1824. Rubber had evolved to the point to be available commercially. Faraday put two sheets of rubber together, using flour to keep the middle and an end from sticking together. He was able to fill the rubber pocket with hydrogen for use in his experiments. At the time, the word balloon was already being used for the hot air variety, but before that, the term came from the Italian word pallone, or the French word ballone, meaning large ball. Balloon had also been a game played with a large leather ball since the 16th century. A year after Faraday's balloon idea took off, Thomas Hancock, a rubber trader, began selling a kit to make balloons in the home. 
which included liquid rubber and a syringe to fill with air. More than 20 years later, rubber was finally shaped into a balloon that could be blown up similarly to the way we do so today. J.G. Ingram was the first to use vulcanized rubber to make balloons. These are considered the prototype for the modern-day balloons we know today. Neil Tollettson invented the latex balloon in the 1920s, with the first shape being that of a cat, so of course it was popular. But he soon made balloons in other shapes. He also went on to invent latex gloves. Tillotson was only meant to be a bullet point in this story, until I was looking through his obituary and saw he wasn't only known for his invention of the latex balloon, but something else caught my eye, so forgive the tangent. Although, if you've been listening for a while, you're probably used to my internet rabbit holes by now. When Tillotson retired, he built the Balsam's Grand Resort Hotel in Dixville Notch, New Hampshire. Residents in Dixville Notch were very few and far between. Tillotson had plenty of room available to build a giant hotel because the unincorporated community of Dixville Notch is very sparsely populated. But that meant that during elections, those living there had to travel about 50 miles to the nearest polling place. Tillotson decided to shine some light on his new hometown and set up a polling location for the residents of Dixville Notch in 1960 for the election between John F. Kennedy and Richard Nixon. New Hampshire's voting laws allow towns to close their polling locations if all eligible voters have voted. Tillotson gathered all eight other Dixville Notch residents to his hotel the eve of election night and made sure the press knew that everyone would be accounted for so that he could put the first ballot in when his watch struck midnight. The polls closed at 12.01 a.m. once everyone had voted, and Dixville Notch, New Hampshire, was the first in the nation to declare their election results. The tradition continued, and Tillotson was always the first vote until his death in 2001. But now the vote is decided by a random drawing from a chamber pot. Eligible voters show up at the hotel at midnight to vote, and they are traditionally the first in the nation to report their results. If I have any listeners from Dixville Notch, I feel like I need to meet you because right now you are my random town trivia celebrity. Balloon sales have dropped in the past few decades. Scientists are learning more about the effect balloons can have on the environment. When a latex balloon filled with helium, for example, is let go of into the atmosphere, it breaks into tiny slivers, which then fall to the ground and breaks down into the soil. That's if the balloon is made of natural latex, though, and most balloons are chemically treated, meaning they don't break down as easily. When those balloons eventually deflate or pop, they could be hazardous to sea animals who may mistakenly eat them, thinking it's food. According to the Balloon Council, no sea animal has ever died from eating a balloon. The Balloon Council? What kind of nonsense is that? Oh well, I go to podcasting conferences, so I guess I really can't judge. The frozen specimens of the Frozen Ark Project aren't the only cold things that can be of great benefit to science. The Protecting Ice Memory Project aims to preserve the rich amount of information contained in our planet's swiftly disappearing ice. Mountain glaciers are actually incredible repositories of data on long-term changes in temperature, as well as concentrations of gases and pollutants in the atmosphere. But as they melt, the history goes with them. So researchers are taking enormous cylindrical samples called ice cores from as many glaciers as possible. 
While tree rings and ocean sediment samples can help scientists create a detailed record of what Earth's climate was like in the past, showing, for example, if a summer was hot or dry, ice cores provide a more direct link. As snow falls, it pulls stuff out of the atmosphere, and it's subsequently buried. You can go back and see what was in the atmosphere at a specific time. That's what makes them really valuable, says Mark Twickler, the science director of the ice core facility. Most ice cores come from Greenland and Antarctica, as those locations provide the longest record, though samples are taken from Russia, North America, and other places. Scientists use either mechanical or thermal drills, which can drill up cores up to 20 feet or 6 meters long and 5 inches or 12 centimeters thick. The oldest ice core that's been unearthed has a record that extends back 800,000 years, although scientists are on the hunt to go back even further. A group of researchers from the University of Washington and the University of Maine have recently submitted a proposal to drill in a spot in Antarctica that they think could produce a record going back one million years. After drilling, researchers must transport the ice cores by ship thousands of miles to the ice core facility without them melting. This is done by moving them in a freezer inside another freezer, and a refrigeration specialist has to accompany the ice cores, just in case. Luckily, according to Twickler, it's been 20 years since an ice core was lost. Sealed in steel tubes and stacked in a vast room, the ice cores are stored at the National Science Foundation's ice core facility outside of Denver, Colorado. There they will be kept as solidly frozen as they were in their glacier. Why do we have to be so careful with giant ice cubes anyway? These ice cores are like safe deposit boxes of invaluable scientific data. They're the only resources on the planet that, at one point in time, had direct contact with the atmosphere hundreds and even thousands of years ago, and preserved traces of it. By learning more about these atmospheric changes in the past, scientists can better project what the Earth's climate may look like in an increasingly warm future. The ICF stores over 17,000 meters of ice cores in a large freezer meticulously maintained at negative 32 degrees Fahrenheit, or negative 35 degrees Celsius. That's very nearly the only temperature at which Celsius and Fahrenheit overlap, which is at negative 40 degrees. The freezer is housed in a large, nondescript building on the Denver Federal Compound. In the freezer, pens can't write, batteries quickly fade, and computers have to be housed in special warm boxes to work at all. Outside the archive freezer is an exam room, set to a relatively warm negative 10 Fahrenheit, where groups of up to 20 scientists dissect the ice cores using precise tools. Samples then whiz off to universities far and wide, where their chemistry, gases, nitrogen, sulfur isotopes, and other properties are analyzed. Tiny pieces of pollution trapped in the ice can tell of volcanic eruptions or radioactive fallout. The ratio of oxygen-16 to oxygen-18 can tell the temperature of the Earth when an ice layer was formed, as well as the level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. 
It was with ice cores that scientists observed the link between carbon dioxide and global temperature. Needless to say, time is of the essence to preserve these samples. As temperatures rise, the glaciers have begun to retreat, melting back slowly over the years. Even before the glaciers are lost, they've started melting at the top surface layers. As the water trickles down through the glacier, it can destroy the chemical composition of the trapped particles and distort the layers. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. There was one item I spent more than an hour researching, only to have to delete it all, and that's the Strategic Steam Locomotive Reserve. Supposedly, during the Cold War, countries like Russia, the UK, and even Sweden and Finland kept steam trains in working order in case their electrical infrastructure or oil supply was disrupted by an attack. The evidence for this reserve seems to be train graveyards, just places where vehicles go when they're obsolete. The fact that every picture has more rust on it than the floor pan of my old Chevy pickup leads me to believe that no major world power is counting on these things. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. So the day after this episode comes out, I've got a little laparoscopic surgery on my abdomen, which will hopefully fix the things going wrong in my thorax. It shouldn't disrupt the publishing schedule, but if I'm unable to record, I'll repost a popular episode from earlier in the run of the show. Let me know on social media if there's any episodes you particularly liked or any you think would be really good for newer listeners to hear, people who maybe haven't gone back through the back catalog. Oh, and as for who's going to get specifically named at the end of this episode, I didn't think about it before I started recording. Sorry, y'all. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science. Everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.